Leviticus chapter 19. This is picking up on my series from May of last year, as best as my notes have documented. Now, before we read this, I'm going to encourage you to um, kind of have your ear tuned to listen to two specific phrases. I am the Lord your God, and I am the Lord. Pay attention to those two specific phrases. I am the Lord your God, and I am the Lord. Leviticus chapter 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it's tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. 
You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all of my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. It's reading and preaching. We ask that you would give us understanding and give us faith by the power of your spirit. Amen. Now, September was a significant time in the Dixon home. Right? Big stuff happened in September in our house. I'm actually not referring to COVID. Uh, for the first time in more than 15 years, Nikki and I finally replaced our washing machine. Right? The washing machine that we got when we first got married was finally giving us enough problems. We'd had it repaired a couple of times, finally giving us enough problems that it was time to replace it. And uh, some of you may be able to relate to this, some of you maybe not, but it, the new one is like totally different, right? And shockingly different. 15 years, technology's changed. 
And there's no agitator in the middle. It's just an empty bucket that you dump clothes into. It's crazy. There's nothing in the middle to ruin your clothes or twist them up. Couldn't even figure out where the soap goes at first. And it's hidden away. You have to pull it open and it's covered up so you don't see it. And I'll be honest, I'm the kind of person that I, I enjoy kind of machines well enough that maybe don't always read the instruction manual most of the time, which occasionally gets me into trouble, but it was intriguing with this one, you know, get it together, uh, attach it and figure it all, you know, get all plugged in and everything, and then we're like, well, no, actually, yeah, it's time to get the instruction manual out on this because I have no idea what I'm doing. And it's intriguing how you kind of figure out, it, it really, it was amazing, you ha- you're supposed to load your clothes differently in this type of washer, instead of going in the ring like you do with the old ones, you lay them flat in layers so that they can twist on each other and wash themselves. It's, I don't know, crazy. But in order to understand how to get our clothes the cleanest and to get the washer to work the way that it's supposed to work and to understand all the gadgets and gizmos and to figure out where the soap goes and what kind of soap you have to use now, had to go to the instruction manual. And... I honestly can say, I can't remember the last time I did it, read the instructions cover to cover to figure out what on earth this machine is designed to do. I I don't know. Let's figure out how it works. It's amazing what you learn when you read the directions. It's also amazing how well it works when you read the directions and follow them, which I don't. Leviticus chapter 19 is considered by many to be kind of the pinnacle, the, the, the most specific set of the instruction manual of God's law in the book of Leviticus for the people of Israel. As you heard it, I mean, it's got a lengthy set of commands, many of which are duplicated in other parts of the book, not all though, but it is a section of Scripture that is kind of the pinnacle of of Jewish ethics, how the Jews were supposed to live. And again, it's their instruction manual. You think about where this is taking place. They've come out of Egypt. It's still very early in kind of human history, and so they know the Lord. Uh, They've heard story of Him passed down from generation uh, to generation, even from creation, but they do not fully know His character. And so he's taken them out into the desert to reveal his character to them. And it's intriguing how the way that he reveals his character to them is through his rules. That's the primary mechanism that he uses to help his people to understand who he is and who they are. Through his law. This is how you are to live. Now, I'm going to be honest, chapter 19 of Leviticus gives uh, some of us heartburn. There's some passages in here that are uh, loved to be taken out of context and loved to be abused and twisted to say things that perhaps they don't or to not say things that perhaps they do. It's a challenging chapter and largely because of how incredibly specific it is. And so in order to kind of approach a chapter like this, where it has a list of rules that we may or may not like, it's important that we have the correct starting point. 
Now, I called your attention to it before I read it, but to have your ears pay attention to those two refrains, I am the Lord your God, and I am the Lord. It's intriguing, actually, that those two phrases kind of functionally set up the structure of the entire chapter. Um, If you try to divide the chapter kind of thematically based on the commands, it'll give you kind of fits because it doesn't seem like um, Moses is kind of following any sort of logical flow. Like He's talking about this, and he's talking about that, and then he's talking about this, and he's talking about that, and he's kind of scattered all over the place. Maybe he was having a bad day, right? Too much coffee or something, I don't know. No, but instead, actually, what it is is the entirety of the chapter is structured around not the commands, but the statement of God's presence. If you actually pay attention to it, there's four stanzas, verses 1 through 10, verses 11 through 18, verses 19 through 31, verses 32 through 37, and each stanza has four refrains. Verses 1 through 10 has, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. It's that reoccurring refrain. Ten, I mean, 11 through 18, it's no longer the I am the Lord your God, but just I am the Lord, again, repeated four times so that you have this kind of symmetry in the poetry. It's not poetry, but intellectually so. While you have I am the Lord your God at the beginning here, you have I am the Lord, and then uh, the third stanza, it kind of brackets First and fourth use, or I am the Lord your God. Second and third in the middle, or I am the Lord. And the fourth, you could guess, it just switches. So you have this kind of lovely symmetry to the passage with this refrain that echoes through that I am the Lord your God. It's important to understand that when we have any conversation about God's law, and Leviticus 19 is intended to kind of sing this to us, it's not a conversation about rules. That's actually the way you get yourself in trouble. Because if you have a conversation about the rules, it's easy to say rules are dumb, or that rule is dumb, or I don't like it, or I'm just not going to follow that one. This is not a conversation about rules. This is a conversation about God. And it's intriguing that even as he's laying out how his people are to behave in the Old Testament, this reoccurring statement of, I am your God. I am your God. I am the covenant-keeping God. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I am the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the one who has pledged myself to you. I am yours. And you are mine. You see, it's easy for us to want to really take New Testament ethics, and it's a continuation of this, and certainly um, different as the nation of Israel has Uh, been fulfilled in the church, but it's easy for us to want to kind of, again, misread the Bible. And when we get to passages to say, well, it's just a list of rules, and I don't maybe like rules, and maybe that's a dumb rule, right? The passage this morning dealing with 1 Timothy, the qualifications for office, maybe we like to say that. Well, I just think that part's dumb, 
I should be open, you know, to live this way. I want to live my best life now. I want to live however I want to live. You can't tell me I'm different. But the whole conversation is transformed when kind of in the backdrop and, and, and singing through and peeking through in every area we have this reality that this is a conversation about who God is. The God who has promised Himself to us. The wise and holy God. The good and true God. In fact, we just confessed our faith about Him, did we not? Without parts or passions, indivisible, this tremendous, majestic, overwhelming God. It frames how we think about rules and His commands and His law differently when it's done from the God who loves His people. I love how that section of the confession says, He is most loving. (laughs) I love how they they intentionally put the comparative, you know, kind of uh, descriptor term there. He he isn't just loving. He's not just more loving than me. He is most loving. There's nothing else that can compare with how much he loves me. That includes how much I love myself, which is a lot. And there's no person I probably love as much as I love myself and you love yourself. And yet, interestingly, our God is most loving. He loves us even more than that. So when we go to have a conversation about how we interact with His law and how we fulfill His law and how we keep His law and how we obey His law, it's from the perspective of a God who loves us, who has covenanted with us, who has promised to never leave us or forsake us, to be with us, to take care of us, to provide for us, to hear our prayers and to answer them, to watch over us even when we sleep, to not let harm befall us in a way that would be eternally damaging and to care perfectly for His creatures. This God has given us an instruction manual. And much like me with my new washer, I can either try to figure out how to do it myself and ruin my clothes, or I can read the manual and do what it says. Now certainly... uh, It's a bit more complex than that, but honestly, not much, really and truly, not much. All right, so this overarching theme is taking place within the confines of the character of God and His promises and pledges to us. In section number one, verses really one through ten, focusing on three through ten, it's framing out that our interaction with God, it takes place on His terms, not ours. Uh, He is a holy God, and therefore all communion with Him, all fellowship with Him is to be holy. We don't get to kind of dictate the terms of engagement with Him. We don't get to be the ones who interact with Him the way that we wish. We don't get to come in and and bring our um, sinful behaviors with us and, and endorse them, be proud of them, to cling to them. This section you see is largely a rehashing of other parts of the Scriptures, but all of these commands he's reestablishing in the the mind of the listener the terms of engagement of how we interact with God. Look, verse 2, how are you supposed to live? What does the instruction manual say? You shall be holy, not optional, right? That's the difference, shall can, should, would, 
shall. It's, you, you must. It has to happen. You're going to be. This is what it means to be the people of God. Now, we know in kind of New Testament fulfilled theology that if you are effectually called by God and His Spirit resides in you, you're automatically made holy. And we also know that the Spirit of God will accomplish His purposes, so you will not only be holy kind of positionally in Christ, but you also will be made to live a holy life. And if we're honest, some of us have kind of said, well, I'm, I'm maybe perhaps determined to prove God wrong. He said that He's going to make me live a holy life, and I may not necessarily want that. And we wonder why our sanctification is slow. That's what His Spirit does. He works holiness in us. And the command here, you shall be holy. Why? Because I am your God. I am holy. And then He goes to explain again or compound this and looking at other commands that help us understand that in relationship. The primary um, family relationship helps us understand that. Verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Why? Because relationship with mom and dad is how as children we learn relationship with God our Father. That's why fathers, it's so important to do your best as best you can to raise children without daddy issues. Because when they have daddy issues in the home, they're going to have daddy issues with God later. It's hard to to trust a heavenly father when the earthly father has not taken care of you. But that's the principle that's laid out. Your relationship with mom and dad, your relationship to learn to submit to them, to be obedient to them. They're the ones who provide for you and take care of you. It's framing this out that, yes, you obey them because you are holy, because God is holy. You shall keep my Sabbath, His day of worship. It's set aside. The day of rest and worship, again, ordering our entire existence around meeting with God and meeting with God when He has determined. Verse 4, not with idols, meeting with Him the way that He has determined, not making any gods cast of metal, uh, meeting with Him on His terms, not for ours. Then the peace offering, again, very specific instructions, and we can see this section particularly is fulfilled. This doesn't... um, pertain to us today in the same way. Thankfully, we're not uh, making peace offerings. Uh, You're not having to bake things or eat it or sacrifice them and burn it. Uh, Instead, that's fulfilled in Christ. But again, the principle here being that our offerings to the Lord are on His terms, not on ours. Put differently, probably not a good idea to offer your sin to God as an offering. And you think, well, of course, obviously. I mean, that makes sense. Why would I ever do that? I know you say that, but if you think about it, like how many times we are dishonest about our motives with ourselves? So then we're like, oh, look, it's holy anger. No, it's just bitterness. Call it what it is. It's not holy anger. You're throwing a temper tantrum like a two-year-old. Call it what it is. Oh, it's just, you know, prayer for additional things. No, it's discontent and jealousy. Again, call it what it is. Well, I'm just serving the Lord because I'm trusting in Him to provide. No, you're not. That's not contentment. 
You see, again, I, we are masters at lying to ourselves. The heart is deceitfully wicked. It is spectacular at lying to us and persuading us that our motives are not as evil as they are. And yet, interestingly, the number one thing that we trust is ourselves and our own heart. I've said this before, but it, it always amuses me that with the spiritual gift tests, literally everyone has the gift of discernment in the spiritual gift test. And why? Do they actually have the gift of discernment? No. What are we saying? We're saying, I trust my read on the world more than anything else. I know a couple of people that are not in that category, but almost all of us say, look, I trust myself more than I trust anything else because I understand how life works. Our ability to lie to ourselves and to really and truly lie about our motives to ourselves is staggering. Again, if, if you never find yourself where a thing that you think is a good motive but turns out to be a bad one, I would suggest you probably don't spend enough time in self-examination. If you think your motives are always good, yeah. It's intriguing, so you have, again, kind of flow to the chapter, this overwhelming backdrop of God promising the covenant-keeping God that He is ours and we are His, and therefore, because of that, we are to be holy in our relationship with Him. Uh, we don't get the privilege of just being like, hey, I've been forgiven, I'm going to go sin now. Uh, you know, we get in Romans where, oh, well, Jesus forgives, grace abounds, I'll go sin more so that grace abounds even more. That doesn't work. Our relationship with the Lord is one that is takes place on his terms, and as a result is to be holy. Now again, none of us are so crass as to make this next kind of logical flow, or I guess better would say is we're not so crass as to own up to this. But most of us in some form or fashion would say, well, I know that because God is holy, I'm supposed to be holy when I'm interacting with him. But... Because my neighbor is sinful, I'm going to be sinful when I'm interacting with them. And I, most of us at least have enough common sense to say that when we're interacting with the Lord, we're going to try to at least, you know, be obedient and be holy and be, you know, um, submissive to his word. But it is unbelievable how quick it is for us to then kind of round on our neighbor and say, well, yeah, but they're jerks. I just, I just don't like them. Right? They're hateful or hurtful people. Why on earth would I want to take care of them? But interestingly, that's the logical flow that God makes in the chapter. If you're going to interact with me as a holy God and be holy in that relationship, guess what? Your standards are not lowered for interacting with sinful people. Just because they're jerks doesn't mean that you get off on you know, being obnoxious to them. Verses 11 through 18. You don't get to steal. You don't get to deal falsely. You don't get to lie to one another. You don't get to swear by my name falsely. So you, you can't deceive people intentionally. You don't get to oppress your neighbor or rob him. Now again, most of us again in, in kind of suburban culture are like, well, I mean, I wouldn't want to rob them. But I mean... Doesn't mean I would pay fair wages either. If I can make an extra buck, I'm going to do it. Which is literally oppressing your neighbor. Not paying fair wages, not 
making it so that he or she can live. Verse 13, many of us have not been employers long enough to understand this one or been employers of the kind of workers that he's talking about here, but uh, a day worker that does their work for the day and rather than being paid at the end of the day, so well, I'll just pay you tomorrow. Maybe the next day. Maybe the next day. Right? We should be those that keep short accounts that are not taking advantage of others, that are not making their lives more difficult, not just by our own laziness or our own greed, valuing money before them. And verse 14, just you get to see how mean-spirited it is. Not cursing the deaf. They can't hear you, so you make fun of them because they can't hear you do it. Or putting a stumbling block before the blind. They can't see that you did it. And you're just being miserable and hurtful and hateful to them. Verse 16, slandering your neighbor. Again, what's working out here is that we are to be holy in all of our relationships. Not just that relationship with God uh, where every part of our lives is to be shaped by holiness with Him, but also holiness with neighbor. Those in God's church, we are to be holy in all that we say and we do. Because God is the Lord. And again, I mean, we're like, well, really, is, how, how, how much is it? I love verse 18. This is one of those verses that, if you actually pay attention to it, kind of hurts our feelings. You shall not take vengeance. Oh, okay, obviously. That's tacky. Or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. When I am a southerner, and there are a few things we do as well as bear a grudge in a way that's socially acceptable. Right? If, if there were a, a, an Olympic competition for southerners specifically, bearing a grudge without being obvious would be our kind of you know, regional sport. And we would all get gold medals. It's what we excel at. And it's interesting, the Lord himself is saying, and that's evil. And you don't get to do that. It's not right. When you treat your brother and your sister that way, you're treating them in an evil fashion, and you're not showing them the respect and the honor that they deserve as those being made in God's image, and you're not reflecting the character of the God that has made you, and the character of the God that loves you, and the character of the God that has redeemed you from evil and brought you out of the land of slavery. You're not measuring up. And please, I mean, I mean this absolutely seriously. We are called to be obedient. This isn't tongue-in-cheek or simply making fun of the culture that I've grown up in. We're called to be obedient to the Word of God. In fact, I would say the next section, verses 19 through 31, is where it perhaps even gets a bit more challenging. 3 through 10, focus on our relationship with God. And that one's obvious. We're holy there because our God is holy. 11 through 18, focus on our neighbor. And within the context of what this chapter is written, that's Jew interacting with Jew. We would kind of define it today as Christians interacting with other Christians. But verses 19 through 31 is actually to say that our holiness is to be so comprehensive 
so transformational that it impacts the very way that we live amongst the outsiders. Those that do not know the Lord. This is where we get the passages that um, those that want to poke holes in the Bible, which they are always unsuccessful at, they try to throw this chapter in our face. And I'll be honest, I've had this chapter thrown in my face more times than I would like to count. And I always laugh because it just shows their ignorance. They're misunderstanding what God is doing. Verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. You're going to be different. And if you are holy the way that our God is holy, mentioned that this morning in the sermon, you're going to be out of step with the way the world works. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're going to be completely different whether you like it or not. And here in chapter 19, we actually have God making specific rules that are designed, some of them for seemingly no other purpose than to show how wonderfully different God's people are. You are not allowed to breed cattle with other breeds. Can't do it. Everybody else in the world could do that. Wasn't a big deal for them. It's actually something we now do as a nation all the time everywhere. That's how we have cows that are so big and have so much food on them and are so delicious. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed. Again, we do that all the time everywhere now. In fact, actually, that field right out there, the building pad when we uh, planted that or uh, put the grass there, we sowed, I think, three different types of seed just waiting to see which one would take for the season that it was in when it would be cool enough or warm enough and what amount of water. Would it be the Bermuda? Would it be the rye? Or would it be the fescue? And you walk outside and it was the crabgrass. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Oh, no, I'm in trouble. That's my jacket right now. It's a wool jacket, but oh, no, the inside's not. What, what is God doing with verses like this is he was showing them that his holiness, one, is not, it's not preoccupied with their convenience. And this is a problem is that for many of us, we actually equate convenience and holiness. Oh, it's easier, therefore it must be better. I don't actually think so. Actually, if you're going to be honest with my washer, this new one's easier, but I'm not actually sure it's better. Certainly, the Lord is making this point, is that just because it's easier, it's not better. In fact, actually, we're called to be those that are so profoundly holy that sometimes it's just inconvenient on principle so that we showcase His holiness to a lost and dying world. Verse 19 gives us a number of kind of almost meaningless illustrations of this. How you treat your cows, how you treat your fields, how you treat your clothing. And then we jump to verse 20, which is not. Very meaningful. How do you treat your women? Do you treat them as objects? Playthings to be consumed and used? Or do you treat them with respect and dignity and honor? The time in which this is being written, how did the nations treat them? The nations treated their women as possessions. I mean, better than their cows, but of similar category. It's not a good thing. The Lord instead says here, women are in the image of God. 
and valuable inside creation of great importance and, be treated, and to be treated with respect and dignity. I love how that section just kind of is added in in a way that's almost inconvenient to show that, yes, even slaves at the time deserved respect and dignity. And then we're back into trees and plants in verse 23. The point that God is making here, though, is that your holiness, again, is to be so comprehensive and so profound that it, it makes us stick out like a sore thumb. That's where we get the funny ones, like verse 27, which, as a young man, made me always chuckle. You don't get to round off the hair on your temples. Your haircuts have to be different. You don't get to cut the edges of your beard. You don't cut your body for the dead or even tattoo your body for the dead. Again, this idea that our bodies belong to the Lord and even things like haircuts are an opportunity for holiness. I might just end this section with a slight application for us to consider, which suggests that many of us probably don't think of holiness as so important that it consumes our life enough that we're comfortable if our neighbors think we're weird. We just don't. Now, we may be weird, and our neighbors may think we're weird because we are weird, but I imagine for many of us, it's not such an a, a undying passion to be like Christ that will be out of step with the world around. Holiness in our relationship with God, holiness in our relationship with our Christian neighbor, holiness in relationship with our unbelieving community. The final section, 32 through 37, is kind of this catch-all I'm saying just, again, top to bottom, left to right, north, south, east, west, fully comprehensive holiness that touches your life in such a way that you're even kind to those that are unkind, to those that you think perhaps do not deserve it, the sojourner in your midst, comprehensive, overwhelming, all-consuming holiness. Now, again, for many of us, this is where you kind of go, oh, I'm exhausted already, though. I mean, life is already so hard, and I'm so tired. I, I'm working hard as it is. And that's where the sermon has to end where it began. The promise that I am your God. I'm with you. You have the Holy Spirit within you. Ask for His power. Ask for His ministry. Ask for Him to work in you that you would be transformed and made new. You, you ask the question, kind of what happened to the, the church in this great nation? And certainly parts of it, it was their theology that, that got them. The Bible's no longer true in their mind, it's still true and they're wrong. Jesus isn't anything special in their mind. Jesus is special, they're wrong. But it's interesting how you can find a church in almost every town in America that understands that Jesus is Lord. They get that. It's not hard to find a place where people will proclaim that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But I might humbly just throw out 
that perhaps the church has lost a preoccupation with holiness. And the unintended byproduct has been that people don't think God does anything. Why would it matter that Jesus saves me from anything if he's not saving me to something? What difference does it matter? What, what, how, how's my life changed? How am I transformed? How am I made any different? Might it be that as God works in our midst, that we would be those that increase in our love and our gentleness and affection for one another and for the Lord Himself? We would increase in our meekness and holiness, but might it be that this would be one of those areas where this church would grow? As I've said it before, that we would be salty salt and very bright light, not just because intellectually we know the answers, but because our lives are consumed with the holiness of God. And that as we speak the truth of Christ, it's not hard to see it in our midst. That our lives and our hands would document the realities that we proclaim with our mouths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for our sin. Fill us with your spirit that we would be equipped to praise Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's